Hello, Doobie listeners. My name is Adam Venrick. You are listening to The Coffee Hour. My guest this week is a professor of anthropology and sociology at both Denison University and at The Ohio State University. Uh, please welcome Dr. Elizabeth Kleinot Hess. Um, and we are here today to talk about social stratification, labor, and how that might be impacted by the uh, ongoing. COVID-19 pandemic. Professor Kleinot Hess, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for being here. Um, it's mm-hmm. a dreary Wednesday when we're recording this. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so you, um, I, I've read some, as background for the listeners, um, I was sent some articles prior to recording this interview. I read over them. Um, Professor, your speciality is in stratified labor. Um, what For our audience, uh, what is stratified labor? How would you define that? Yeah, well, so I'm interested in kind of labor market inequality is basically what it is and how the labor market's been kind of segmented into good jobs and bad jobs. Mm-hmm. And I also look at how kind of even the previously good jobs are seeping into you know, what used to be the definitions of bad jobs. Um, um, there's a lot less good jobs left. Um, so yeah, I, I look at um, a lot of aspects of labor market inequality, but also how kind of the restructuring of the labor market, um, you know, what we call this casualization, this movement towards more non-standard, you know, part-time temporary work, things like that, uh, have kind of created and reproduced inequality in the workplace. Very interesting. Um, before, yeah. before we... Um go any further how would you define a good job or a bad job right so yeah obviously it's very complicated um and there's you know obviously a lot of definitions of it i mean generally people would agree that a good job is a job that uh you know provides enough income to meet your needs um and also generally were considered to be uh, jobs that had a lot of job or a lot of job security uh, <laughs> as well as jobs that often kind of provide a lot of uh, autonomy ability to provide input and decision making and jobs that provide a lot of intrinsic rewards so just jobs that you feel good about you feel important uh doing your they're very fulfilling jobs um and those used to be kind of what we would call primary labor market jobs mm-hmm. um and then you know, bad jobs are going to be jobs that experience a lot more job insecurity, um, low wages. Uh, you know, right now the minimum wage is generally not enough to lift people above the poverty line, right. especially if they're supporting other people. So, uh, you know, those, those low wages are especially a problem, but they also oftentimes come along with safety issues and a lack of autonomy and uh, some pretty acute job security. Um, so, yeah, for job insecurity, rather. So a, a good job might be working for Google, whereas a bad job might be the Amazon distribution center line. Yeah, yeah. And so the in, in the, the sectors that have experienced the most growth recently, the service sector and the care work sector is mm-hmm. really where we see, you know, this big divide between good jobs and bad jobs. So in the service sector, you know, you have good jobs like real estate and business consulting and finance and all those Wall Street jobs. Um, But then you also have a lot of really bad jobs, the fast food jobs, right? Mm -hmm. um, You know, restaurant servers and uh, retail jobs and, you know, housekeepers and cleaners and all these different types of things that tend to be very bad, also more likely to become temporary now. 
um, and to be part-time jobs. And then the care work sector, right, we have you know, things like medicine that are these really good jobs. And then we also have other jobs like uh, nursing home aides, uh, home health care aides, nursing assistants, personal care aides, those types of things that tend to be really low paid, not very secure. Um, so we definitely really see that splintering of the labor market with these new you know, uh, sectors that are growing, whereas the manufacturing jobs used to be kind of the jobs in the middle, mm -hmm. and so did a lot of clerical jobs, and now we've seen those disappear. Interesting. Um, mm -hmm. So before we go any further, I'm so curious, how did you become interested in studying labor and the labor market? Yeah, so uh, I was always just really interested in kind of labor issues. I was involved in a lot of like labor activist groups in high school and college, and I've worked a lot of various, you know, low-wage and insecure jobs and met a lot of people who were, you know, really struggling oftentimes trying to support families on these, uh, the wages of these jobs and mm -hmm. really learned a lot about the struggles that people faced. And, um, you know, between that and my labor activism just got really interested in, um, you know, actually trying to research these things and, you know, hopefully be able to provide policy recommendations and things like that. Um, and that that might be kind of a good use of my time and energy. Um, so that was really the main reason I went to grad school was specifically to study uh, you know, work and labor issues, and especially the inequality that exists in the workplace and the role that the labor movement can play in improving working conditions. Interesting. Um, so I'm very curious, one, one of the articles that you sent me, uh, that you had written, um, talked about something called involuntary part-time labor. Could you, uh, could you explain what involuntary part-time labor is? Yeah, so, uh, involuntary part-time labor is something that we've seen a huge growth uh, in recent decades. And basically, you know, part-time work uh, is something that obviously some people choose. Mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes, you know, people who are just maybe working while they're in college or, you know, they're a parent and not able to work full-time hours uh, or they're just kind of trying to supplement uh, some, you know, other income that they have. Mm -hmm. But there are also a lot of people who are in part-time jobs, not because they want to, but because they can't find full-time work. So you have some people that, you know, just have applied to a lot of full-time jobs, just have not been able to get one, or there's just not a lot available in their area, and so they end up having to accept a part-time job. You also have some people who are hired as a full-time employee and then actually have their position changed to part-time. Mm. And then you have some people in jobs where they're not really guaranteed any number of hours, and they may have uh, a lot of weeks where they end up getting less full-time hours, especially a lot of service industry jobs where your hours really vary based on like time of the year and things like that, mm. um, especially like kind of tourist type jobs. So it's something that uh, is really growing, but because these are positions, you know, part-time positions can have some desirable things if you want a part-time job, but if you're someone who, you know, doesn't want a part-time job, oftentimes it's because you need more income uh, than you would make working only part-time. So then you're going to have a really hard time meeting your needs on this income. Uh, and so it's just uh, something that puts people in a difficult situation. Also, part-time jobs generally don't come with any benefits. Mm. And, you know, oftentimes involuntary part-time workers are, you know, people who, you know, really do need those benefits. And we've also actually, in addition, seen some jobs start to shift to part-time, kind of an unfortunate consequence of the Affordable Care Act was that some employers switched their full-time positions to part-time positions so that they wouldn't have to provide health insurance to uh, their part-time 
workers mm. and or to their to the full-time workers by making them part-time so uh it's something that we've seen a big growth of but it's 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 something that we we talk a lot about when we talk about kind of insecure work um and non-standard work got it uh well that actually brings me into um a phrase that we sort of hear i think a lot today um the gig economy um oh excuse me um <laughs> the gig economy um, what is the gig economy before we move any further? Yeah. So basically what's happened is we've moved from, you know, a, a type of labor market where a lot of the jobs, at least in the primary labor market and often in the secondary market, just a lot of jobs in general were permanent jobs, you know, jobs that you expected to have for a long time. Uh, and now we've had a shift, uh, which we oftentimes refer to, uh, sociologists that study work in the economy as casualization, basically mm -hmm. taking these permanent full-time kind of standard positions and making them, you know, these casual positions, these part-time positions and these contingent positions, which basically, you know, contingent work is any type of work that is, uh, you know, a very short-term thing or something that has kind of no expectation of permanency. Mm -hmm. So this includes things like, you know, uh, people working for temporary help agencies would be an example. Uh, people working for day labor agencies or just working as day laborers, like informally, um, you know, you know, waiting in a parking lot and things like that. It also includes people that are working for these kind of gig economy platform, uh, you know, companies that use things like, you know, Uber and Lyft and Uber Eats and TaskRabbit and all those types of things where you're just kind of piecing together all these really short-term gigs. Uh, and we've really just seen a big shift to these types of jobs that's just been continuing uh, over the last several decades and really been accelerating recently as we've also kind of just, sh employers have shifted the way that they kind of view labor in general um, has really contributed to this. Interesting. Um, does, does it worry you, this casualization? Like, is it cause for concern in any way? Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's definitely a cause for concern. Um, I mean, there are a few types of kind of contingent work that some people do like, uh, like independent contracting, you know, and freelancing stuff can be good for some people. And some people like to use like gig economy jobs just to supplement uh, other income. Mm -hmm. So there are, can be some benefits, but for the most part, you have a lot of people who are in these types of positions involuntarily, just like involuntary part-time workers, people that can't find permanent positions uh, and instead have to take these, uh, you know, temporary or contingent positions. Uh, and these positions generally don't have any benefits. They don't have any consistent hours. They have, you know, no job security because mm -hmm. they're not expected to continue. Um, they're generally, you know, going to be very short-term things. The other concerning thing as we're also seeing, uh, you know, or we're seeing professional work starting to become casualized as well and starting to take on these characteristics of, you know, these contingent uh, and gig economy type jobs. So we have, for example, temporary lawyers mm. um, who are basically uh, instead of, you know, working for a law firm, they work for these temp agencies. They go in when law firms need document review done, which is kind of like going through documents and seeing if they're privileged or not. Uh, and then in academia, we have um, now a lot of uh, tenure track positions are being eliminated, uh, are not replaced, and are instead being replaced with 
these uh, contingent positions like adjuncts and lecturers. So we're seeing that uh, in academia as well, because these are generally jobs where people are only hired for one semester. Um, we're also seeing uh, a lot of kind of you know, insecure independent contracting and like business consulting, computer programmers. We're also seeing now temp agencies pop up. If there's not enough permanent jobs, they're ending up working for these temp agencies. Um, we'll have like, you know, just a couple day gigs um, working for people. So that's another concern is that it's also permeating the professional labor market. So really no jobs are safe at this point, which is obviously concerning. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, these are not, these are not good jobs generally, um, and especially the low wage ones, but the professional ones also have, you know, a lot of downsides as well, especially when it comes to job insecurity. So what you're saying is that as this casualization has gone on, it's, it's starting to impact things that we would traditionally think of as career work, um, or good jobs. Yeah. Interesting. Yes. That's mm -hmm. uh, very interesting. And then another thing, of course, that, um, just speaking as someone who's worked for one of these platforms in the past, um, it's not like there's any uh, union presence in um, in these sorts of very temporary jobs. Uh, but as as charts will show, um, and as we've discussed in uh, the class that I take with you, um, union presence has declined a fair amount in the last five decades. Um, and and quite steadily since the Great Recession, um, what uh, what what can you what can you tell us about the decline of unions and why might that be frightening? Yeah, so unions have been on decline for the last several decades. There's really a number of things that contribute to this, um, but basically, just the general trend is we went from uh, about in the Late 1940s, early 1950s, the unionization rate was about 33%, mm -hmm. uh, and then it's gone down to about 11%. Mm -hmm. And in the private sector, we've seen an especially steep decline to 7%. Mm -hmm. um, so we've been seeing this big decline, and it's, it's due to a number of factors. One is a lot of the industries that used to have really you know, high levels of unionization, like the manufacturing industry, uh, have seen a big decline due to automation and outsourcing. So, uh, you know, because a lot of union members were in those industries, right, as those industry jobs decline, there's less of that. Um, so that's one thing that's contributed to it. But there's also been a lot of kind of actions by the government and by businesses that have contributed to this as well. So governments have been passing, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of legislation, both at the state and federal level that affect unions, such as right to work laws uh, in states. And um, we're also seeing kind of a defunding of the National Labor Relations Board, which oversees union negotiations and um, in terms of business strategies, uh, I can go into more detail on some of them, but basically there's this whole union avoidance consulting industry that's yeah. sprung up to kind of help them avoid it. And there's also been a lot of, but it kind of relates to the gig economy too, in that by hiring temporary workers, they're able to like get around unionization. So if the permanent workers are unionized and you go through a temp agency, you get a bunch of workers after, you know, laying off some of those permanent ones or after they quit, that it means that they're not part of that union because there's temporary workers. Very interesting. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you since you brought it up, um, right to work acts mm -hmm. or laws, um, 
Ohio, I think, is a right to work. It's a right to work state, isn't it? Uh, so that actually do not have not managed to pass the right to work, but they've tried several times, okay. uh, but they have, you know, still, still done a few things to kind of, um, make it a little bit more difficult. Uh, Ohio also has some interesting provisions that make unionization among some public sector employees more difficult. Um, so there's like, they basically exclude in the Ohio Revised Code, which kind of, uh, you know, is a lot of talks about things like collective bargaining for public employees. They basically exclude a lot of people from the definition of public employees. Mm. And that includes people like grad students, as well as part-time faculty, which would be like adjuncts uh, or lecturers that are only teaching two classes, uh, that they're all excluded from being able to unionize. And I think there's a number of other categories as well. Um, so, or some of them are excluded from unionizing, but they will not be able to collectively bargain. Um, so, and at one point, Ohio tried to pass a law similar to what Wisconsin passed, which would have basically um, made it so that public employees, all public employees, couldn't collectively bargain. And actually, they did pass it, but the people of Ohio basically vetoed it through a referendum. That's yeah. well, the reason I bring it up is I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. um, driving in Columbus and seeing a fair amount of billboards that deal with <laughs> right to work acts. There's um, anyone who's ever driven on a Columbus freeway will probably yeah. know a few of them. But um, I, I actually, I, I wanted to ask you, uh, what is a right to work act? I'm not entirely yeah. sure. Yeah. So right to work states, and they kind of vary a little bit by state, but generally what they tend to have in common is that you are, uh, if you start working at a workplace that has a union, you're not required to join that union, but you will still be covered by that union contract. So you'll like receive all the benefits they negotiated for without like contributing union dues. Um, so it allows kind of, you know, free riders essentially. And so, uh, so one of the things that it says is that they cannot um, require you to join the union. Um, there are some states that will say, well, the union can still like, require you to pay a small fee, um, like representation fee, but that would be less than the union dues. And then you don't get to go to union meetings and stuff like that. But some states say that they can't charge you anything. Also, in some states, it also says that they like can't collect dues directly from your paycheck. They have to collect it separately and so it can also include things like that that make it more difficult. Um, but, you know, if someone starts working somewhere and they can get the benefits of a union without paying into it, then what's their incentive to kind of pay into it? Um, and, you know, if unions don't have enough funds, it's difficult to, to kind of continue. Right. But it's still there are still some states where um, even with right to work laws, you know, people have been able to still maintain pretty high union membership. So Michigan passed a right to work law, but they are have always can you had more of a history of labor organizing. So like I know that uh, the lecturers union there were really worried about what would happen when right to work passed, that they would lose a lot of members, but it really didn't happen. Um, so it doesn't always result in a loss, but in most of the states that's been passed, it's been in like southern states that never really had much of a history of union organizing. So mm -hmm. um, those states, it has a pretty negative effect on because it just prevents unions from organizing in the first place if they didn't really exist there. So what I'm getting is that where there was already a strong union presence, people stuck with the union. Um, but yeah. I, I'm curious, I feel like, I don't know, when I think of unions, I, I think of two like very different stereotypes like I think of that, that generate from TV and media I think either of like just like a random workplace union that 
that is trying to collectively bargain and get better conditions for the employee. Or I think of like sort of the fear mongering um, idea of a union that's like packed with mafia members and, and <laughs> will will bleed your paycheck. Um, it, what it, What is an accurate representation of a union? Like it, do people need to be afraid of unions? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's complicated. There have been a few unions, like most notably the Teamsters, mm-hmm. that have had like a history of corruption. Yeah. Um, and that, uh, but those unions, especially like the Teamsters, have had a lot of basically reform movements emerge within the union. So I you know people that are involved in Teamsters for a Democratic Union, which is basically the reform organization mm. within Teamsters that are now running people for all the elected positions and like trying to push for change from within. And I think they've been fairly successful. And that's happened at most of the unions that had kind of some history of corruption is that there's been like mostly young people generally, um, you know, younger, newer members kind of making these reform organizations and trying to reform them. And they've been like fairly successful, but obviously it's, you know, it's difficult when you're up against like people who've been in those positions forever. Um, but, uh, there's, there's a lot of unions that, you know, don't have those issues, but unfortunately it just kind of, you know, permeates to that. Um, but most unions, you know, are very democratic and, um, you know, are, you know, just involved in trying to organize particular workplaces in just a pretty, you know, standard, boring fashion, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, just having a union election. And then if, you know, if, if enough people vote to have a union, then going through a collective bargaining process. And, and the National Labor Relations Board, you know, is supposed to oversee union elections to make sure that neither side, you know, the union or the employer, you know, does anything problematic, right. um, you know, that could jeopardize the, the organizing process and or bias in one way or another. Um, but yeah, for the most part, I mean, most unions are very democratic. A lot of unions are also kind of taking on new strategies instead of just the typical old, you know, way of organizing a workplace through like a union election and collectively bargaining for just that workplace. Now, a lot of merging what's called social movement unionism, and they're just kind of building alliances with a lot of community organizations like immigrants' rights organizations and women's rights organizations and anti-poverty organizations and wealth, you know, welfare mothers organizations and things like that um, to kind of just work on generally, you know, pushing for issues that benefit workers in that community, like these coalitions have pushed for, uh, you know, raising the minimum wage in various cities and states. They've pushed for things like uh, paid sick day ordinances in some cities. Um, And they also uh, have, you know, just generally tried to kind of bring pressure to certain employers that, uh, you know, are known for a lot of labor issues. Like there was social movement unionism is basically what happened uh, with this, our Walmart campaign, it was called, but it had some unions um, like the UFCW involved, but also had a lot of community organizations. And because they hadn't really had any success organizing Walmarts, instead what they did is just, you know, in coalition with these other groups, had uh, put a lot of pressure on Walmart um, and actually did result in an increase in the minimum wage for Walmart employees. So this new way of organizing, um, you know, works too, but it looks very different. Mm. uh, And, you know, the effects are different as well. Yeah. Um, I'm curious then. So unions are on a decline. And we're in this period of increased job casualization. Um, And I I kind of feel like those two things must feed into each other. But um, I'm so, I'm so curious. Um, And obviously, 
it might be too early to speculate, but um, how do you how do you think this casualization will change or deepen with the the impact of coronavirus? Yeah, so um, I think it will probably get worse. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's definitely been a lot of those kind of gig economy type jobs that using the, the platforms and things like that. There's been an increased demand for during the pandemic. And I think after the pandemic, you might still see a lot of people who, you know, now have just gotten used to getting their groceries delivered by Instacart and, you know, ordering their food from Uber Eats. And so you might still see kind of high demand for those. Um, at the same time, you've had a lot of employers now, you know, working with less employees and also finding ways to just automate a lot more jobs. So you're going to see, uh, I think, you know, possibly a decrease, especially in some of those lower skilled jobs as employers decide to just stick with automation because they saw that it worked during the pandemic and a lot of, a lot more automation has happened during the pandemic because, you know, robots can't get sick. <laughs> you don't have to worry about, you know, uh, all these health issues and things like that or disruptions to production. So I think that's going to, um, you know, result in, in decline in some of those jobs. Um, um, you know, we're going to have an economic recession. Well, we are in one, which I think will continue for a while after the pandemic. Right. And so that also means that you're going to have a lot of people applying for, you know, the same smaller pool of jobs, which will probably push down wages um, and just allow kind of employers to provide you know, poor working conditions in general, because when people are more desperate, they're more willing to accept uh, poor working conditions. Um, so I think, you know, we might see a, a decline in some of those things. Um, but it's it's definitely hard to tell, especially now, you know, there are, there is discussion of, of Pat, or they're trying to pass legislation to increase the minimum wage, yeah. uh, which, you know, could help things. Um, but yeah, so it's kind of hard to see what the impact will be. Interestingly, when it comes to unionization, I think, I don't know if they'll be successful, but I think we're going to see an increase in unionization attempts because we have seen uh, an increase in labor organizing during the pandemic. Uh, like a lot of Amazon workers, mm -hmm. Instacart workers mm -hmm. uh, have both had major unionization campaigns, you know, building on the fact that they are seen as essential workers and there's a lot of attention on them right now. And they're being forced to work in, you know, you know, during during times when it's very unsafe to work and oftentimes in, in working conditions where they're not well protected. Right. So we've actually seen like a spike in union organizing and interest in it. So it's possible we'll actually see an increase in unionization, but I don't know that they'll actually be, you know, successful. Um, it's hard to say. Yeah. Well, and I'm curious, like you, you brought up earlier, like the the rise of automation, because obviously, yeah, mm -hmm. machines don't get sick. Machines don't unionize. Um, I, and and those machines do typically take the the low skill jobs, um, which which tend to be occupied by um, by lower income people. Um, so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm so curious. Um if if this trend in automation continues, what can um, what can the people who would have relied on those jobs do? Yeah, I mean, so it's a, it's a big issue, and it's not it. Well, it started with low skill jobs, and it's still a lot of the jobs that are being automated are low skill jobs. It is starting, you know, they are now developing, you know, robots and AI that are able to do a lot of 
you know, middle skilled and high skilled mm-hmm. jobs. And people project that up to 40% of jobs could be automated in the next 30 years. Um, so it's, uh, there's, there's a lot of jobs, even like a lot of skilled jobs, like, uh, accountants and, um, a lot of jobs in the stock market and stuff like that are all things that, uh, are being automated and can be automated. A lot of clerical jobs have already be automated been automated. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely looking like we could see a big spread of automation. I mean, one of the main things that's been proposed to deal with that, which I think is gaining a lot of traction on both actually the left and the right, uh, is a universal basic income. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, during the Democratic primary, uh, Andrew Yang, one of the Democratic candidates, brought mm-hmm. it up, which I think brought a lot more attention to it, but it, it's already something that people have been doing experiments with and that's been proposed by both libertarians and socialists. Mm. So it's uh, it's kind of interesting, but basically a universal basic income is where everybody, you know, regardless of whether they're working or not and what their income is and anything like that, everybody that lives in a country would be provided uh, with a check every month that would be intended to meet their basic needs mm-hmm. um, so that if they aren't working, they can still cover their needs or it would allow everybody to just, you know, maybe shift to a part-time job, um, you know, or just work 10 to 20 hours a week because this would then kind of supplement that. And then you can spread the remaining jobs among more people if they're all just working 10 to 20 hours a week instead of, you know, 40 plus hours a mm-hmm. week. So that's been one of the major proposals, which I think is, is a good is a good proposal, but I think it would also be difficult to, to pass, but you never know. Um. <laughs> I, I do think one thing this pandemic has taught us is just how poor a job the government does sometimes at actually caring for the citizens of the United States. Um, yeah. But I, I'm curious. Yeah. I do have one, one final question um, yeah. that goes off of that. Um what do you think could be a good solution to some of these problems? Yeah. So I think, I mean, unionization definitely makes a difference. Um, but again, uh, things are getting harder for unions, but if they can unionize, it does make a difference. Uh, you know, when it comes to contingent workers, so for example, contingent faculty, lecturers and adjuncts, uh, you know, a study I did shows that when they are unionized, they get higher wages, they have more job security, uh, they oftentimes are better integrated into their departments. So it has like these actually, you know, significant improvements for uh, workers who are covered by union contracts. Uh, also, there's been like in New York, there's a freelancers union, which is kind of like um, a union that freelancers can join that helps kind of like pool resources to like purchase health insurance and also provide like, you know, various types of assistance and stuff to people in it. And that has made a difference there. So I think that unionization is is one aspect, but it's really hard to unionize, uh, you know, certain types of contingent workers in general. Um, but obviously, you know, I think there needs to be more regulation mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to a lot of things. I think we need a higher minimum wage mm-hmm. because the current minimum wage is not enough to uh, for people to make ends meet on, especially if they're supporting anyone other than themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we definitely need an increase in that. Um, I think also it could be helpful to, you know, we give a lot of kind of tax breaks to companies. Um, and, you know, I think if we're going to give them, it would be, you know, better to make them as, you know, incentives for good labor practices, you know, uh, as like incentives or if you promise not to, you know, automate a certain percentage of your jobs or uh, if you, you know, agree to, you know, not use temporary workers and just use permanent workers or, you know, make all your positions full time, like somehow tie 
you know, tax incentives to that. I think that would be helpful. Um, but overall, I mean, overall, we have a lot less regulation of our labor market than most other industrialized, you know, capitalist democratic mm-hmm. countries. Mm-hmm. So, you know, basically all of Europe and everywhere yeah. else. So, I mean, I think if we could provide some of the regulation that a lot of those other countries do be helpful. I mean, some of them have regulations on working hours. A lot of them have regulations on, you know, uh, you know, mandatory time off for both sick days and vacation days. Um, I think those are all things that can improve jobs, you know, universal health care. Because right now, so many things are tied to people's jobs that if you don't have a job or you don't have a job that provides it, uh, then you're going to be a lot worse off than the people you know in the U.S., you know, uh, you're best off. It, you know, most people get their their health coverage from their employer, and generally, if you get it from your employer, it's cheaper than purchasing it on the private market because your employer subsidizes it. Right. But that means that then people who are working in in full time jobs um, are advantaged, right, over people that are working in part time jobs. So it just kind of exacerbates inequality. Whereas if that those things are provided by the government, uh, you know, as well as other aspects of good jobs like vacation days, sick days, if that that's all guaranteed by the government, then everybody has that regardless of, you know, whether they're in a professional or a non-professional or full-time or part-time job. So those types of things also really help. So just, you know, providing more benefits, more of a social safety net and more regulation, um, which are all going to be challenging, yeah. challenging things to do in this country where we have a very individualist culture that tends to be opposed to that, those types of programs. But, um, might might be changing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What why do you think we're so opposed to these programs even if they might be in our best interest? Uh, Yeah, so there's a number of reasons for it. One is that the U.S. has a very individualist culture Mm -hmm. um, where, you know, there are other countries that are much more collectivist where the group is, you know, the welfare of the the group is more important than the, you know, individual freedoms and individual benefit. Mm -hmm. But in the U.S., uh, I mean, there there are other countries that are, you know, fairly individualist like the UK and Mm -hmm. Australia and Canada. Um, But we are kind of (laughs) at the severe end of it where people are very uh, individualist. And you can also see that in people not wearing masks uh, because that's about protecting the collective and people care more about their individual freedom to not wear one. Um, But so the individualism is part of it because, you know, these social safety net programs and things like that are seen as things that, you know, benefit everybody, not just them. And they really, you know, just care about themselves. So that's part of it. Um, We also, uh, you know, have a very heterogeneous population, whereas a lot of the countries that have passed these things have a more homogenous population where people are more similar in terms of, you know, religion and race and ethnicity and, you know, all these other types of things. So they see it as benefiting people that are similar to them, whereas in the U.S. people worry about things benefiting people different than them, (laughs) Um, like people of different races and and ethnicities and immigration status and things like that. you know, which is unfortunate, but that is an issue in the U.S. Um, That's part of it. We also just have a very fragmented political structure where you have, um, you know, some stuff left up to states, some stuff left up to the federal government, and sometimes not a lot of clarity of who should be responsible for things. Um, And then I think also the two-party system makes it difficult as well. Um, Yeah. Interesting. Um, I mean, that all, that all makes sense. I think, um, a lot of, well, the other thing, the other thing is just the power of corporations in the U S. Um, because in the U S 
you know, the Supreme Court decided that corporations are people and that uh, money campaign contributions is free is a form of free speech. So corporations uh, can donate as much money as they want to candidates and we don't have publicly funded campaigns. They're privately funded. So they then depend on this money. So then of course they're gonna do what uh, the corporations want them to do uh, so they can keep receiving those funds for their campaigns. Um, so that's that that's a big obstacle too. I think it'll be hard to make make any kind of change in terms of you know uh, workers' rights and things like that, while corporations can so easily oppose it mm-hmm. by providing funding to candidates. Of course. Um, well, Professor Kleinot Hess, is there anything else mm-hmm. that you would have wanted me to have asked you in the course of this interview? Um, I think that's everything. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I can. Uh, yeah, if people want you know any more information, they're also welcome to email me. Uh, I also have a website with some of this stuff. Although I don't know, <laughs> it's my name, which is complicated, so I'll just spell it real quick. It's uh, Elizabeth, and then K L A I N O T H E S S dot com. So um, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I'm always happy to, to answer more questions about any of these things. But uh, yeah, well, good to talk about it. Yeah, it was very good to have you. Um, I, I really appreciate your time today, Professor, and thank you. Um, I am gonna I'm gonna hang up real quick and then sign off. So thank you very much. I will see you in yep. class. Um, Doobie listeners, this has been Adam Venrick for the Coffee Hour. Signing off.